Let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into the Gospel of Matthew. We're in the 26th chapter, but let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them, please. And we're going to take a look at this 26th chapter of Matthew and uh, Jesus' trial, the first of his trials. Let me just go ahead and share the screen here for you. Okay, so Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 57, and we'll go ahead and read through uh, the end of the chapter almost. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, we've already seen that Jesus had enjoyed that last meal with his disciples in the upper room. He had then departed and gone across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. He had spent some time there in prayer with his disciples, and eventually he was arrested. The temple guards came with their torches and their spears, led by Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And then we're told all of the disciples fled. They probably fled in the direction of the Mount of Olives. The Garden of Gethsemane is located on the slope of the 
Mount of Olives. And so they probably headed off in that direction up over the top of the mountain in the direction of Bethany where they had been staying the days previous. And Jesus was arrested and he was hauled off to be tried. And that's what we're going to be taking a look at today, the trial of Jesus. And I say the trial because we're only going to look at one of them. There was actually more than one trial of Jesus that led to his death. Uh, but we're going to take a look specifically at the Jewish trial today, but I'll give you some background information on it. Trials or courtroom dramas are things that have always captivated the attention of people. If you're anything like me, I love a movie that centers around a courtroom drama. Uh, some of you I know remember back in 1998, I remember it vividly, the impeachment of President Clinton that trial that he had before the House managers it was presided over by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, William Rehnquist, and then the verdict was handed down by the United States Senate. All of those salacious details that came out and the Chief Prosecutor, Kenneth Starr, I remember being absolutely riveted to the television because this was the first time that a U.S. president had been impeached since Andrew Johnson back in the 1860s. And it seemed that every news outlet was absolutely fixated on this one event. Now, some of you who are older can remember the trial that took place in the Watergate conspirators. Not a Democratic president. This time it was a Republican president, Richard Nixon. Nixon ultimately never came to trial. He resigned. But all of the other conspirators went to trial, 1973 to 1974. And again, people were absolutely fixated on the events. Businessmen took portable televisions into their offices that they might watch the proceedings. Or some of you may recall that at the end of World War II, there were the Nuremberg war trials in which the Nazi war criminals were brought to trial and prosecuted, people like Hermann Goering. And you go even further back in history and you have the trial of Aaron Burr, who conspired against the United States government, was brought forward on uh, charges of treason in 1807. Or Mary Stewart in 1586, who was brought for trial for treason against the crown, against Elizabeth I or Charles I, the King of England, who was brought to trial before the parliament. Or even further back in history, the famous trial of Socrates before the leaders of Athens in 399 BC. These were significant trials. People were enthralled by them. And what's more, they changed the course of history, every single one of them. And yet I submit to you that there has never been a trial in the history of the world that has been more significant, has changed the course of history more than the trial of Jesus Christ. The trial of Jesus Christ before the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, and the trial of Jesus Christ before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, a trial that ultimately led to Jesus' condemn condemnation and ultimately to his execution on a hill outside the city of Jerusalem. And that's what we're going to look at. This is one of the most significant events in history because it leads to the most significant events in history, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting is that none of the gospels give us a full account of the trials of Jesus Christ. But if you read them side by side, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get a comprehensive picture of exactly what Jesus went through. And one of the things that you quickly realize, as I said, is that there were actually more than one trial. There were two trials to be specific. 
there was a Jewish trial in which Jesus went before the Jewish authorities, and there was a Roman trial. Now, the Jewish trial, which we're going to look at today, was a trial in three parts. There was the initial hearing that Jesus endured before the high priest Annas. It's described in John chapter 18. Matthew doesn't mention it here. Matthew mentions the fact that he went before the high priest Caiaphas. Now, what you have to understand is that, technically speaking, there was only one high priest. It's interesting that Matthew mentions Caiaphas, John mentions Annas and Caiaphas, because in the first century, while technically there was only one, there were two. I say technically only one because the position of high priest was a hereditary position. It's not something that you could run for. It's not necessarily something that you could be appointed to. It was something that you inherited from your father. But the Romans quickly discovered that the high priest could be difficult to work with. They were not always friendly toward the Roman Empire. And so the Romans, because they were in control of this portion of Palestine, oftentimes deposed the high priest and put somebody else in the position that they felt was better suited, at least to their needs and their desires. So technically, the man who was the high priest, according to Jewish tradition and Jewish, Jewish, law, Jewish law, was this man, Annas. But because he did not cooperate well with the Romans, he had been deposed by them and replaced by, get this, his son-in-law, Caiaphas. You can just imagine how that went over in family Thanksgiving dinners. So we're told that when Jesus was initially arrested, the temple guards, rather than taking him to Caiaphas, initially took him to Annas, who some must have regarded as the legitimate high priest. And Jesus was heard. The charges were brought against him, and he was heard by Annas. Annas, apparently, because he had no authority to pass judgment under Roman law, then sent him on to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who actually had legitimate authority in the eyes of the Romans. But at least that is the initial hearing that Jesus has. So he is arrested, he is taken off before Annas, um, and Annas sends him off to Caiaphas. Now, the hearing before Caiaphas is described in Matthew chapter 26, right here, but it's also described in Mark chapter 14 and Luke chapter 22. We've already talked a little bit about Caiaphas. We said that Caiaphas was a man who held the office of high priest for about 18 years, which is rather extraordinary because the Romans had a tendency to displace the high priests. Uh, they found that they could be troublesome and difficult. The average tenure of a high priest during the time that the Romans controlled this portion of the first century world was about five years. The fact that Caiaphas served in this capacity for 18 years tells us that he was a man who was a collaborator. He worked well with the Romans. So already Jesus is at a disadvantage when he appears before Caiaphas. Eventually, however, uh, Caiaphas realizes that he has no power in and of himself to pass judgment on Jesus. And so the Lord has to be tried before the highest tribunal, the highest court within Judaism in that time period, and that would have been the Sanhedrin. And that portion of the trial was described in Matthew 27, Mark 15, and Luke 22. Now, a little bit about the Sanhedrin. We've talked about them before as we've made our way through the Gospel of Matthew. 
In our government today, we have a division of powers, and that's because the Founding Fathers recognized that no one body should be vested with ultimate authority for fear that there would be some kind of abuse. And so they divided the powers among the three branches of government. So we have a legislative branch of government that has the responsibility of making the laws, Congress. We have an executive branch of government, that is to say the presidency that has the responsibility for carrying out those laws, executing those laws. And then we have a judicial branch of government, that is to say the court system, the Supreme Court in particular, which has the responsibility for interpreting those laws and determining whether or not they are in fact constitutional. So no one branch of government has ultimate authority or ultimate power. It's this balance. And it served us well over 200 years. In the first century, there was no such division of power within Judaism. The Sanhedrin had ultimate authority. They made the laws, so they were the judiciary. They executed the laws, so they were the executive branch. And they interpreted the laws, and so they were the judiciary. So there was the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branches, and all of that were vested in this one single body, the Sanhedrin. They had ultimate authority, and ultimate authority over the spiritual life of every Jew, not only living in Palestine, but every Jew living in the world. So when Jesus comes to stand trial before the Sanhedrin, he is standing trial before the ultimate court of justice, at least according to the Jews. So Jesus' trial before the Jewish authorities is a trial in three parts, that initial hearing before Annas, the trial before Caiaphas, and then the final hearing before the Sanhedrin. Now in the first century, the Jews, this included the Sanhedrin, had lost the power to execute people for capital crimes. So while they could certainly punish people by flogging and beating and sometimes by means of imprisonment, they did not have the authority to put anyone to death. That was a power that was vested solely in the Roman authorities. Now, by this point, Caiaphas and the members of the Sanhedrin and the other Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, had come to the conclusion that Jesus just couldn't be silenced. Jesus had to be killed. They needed to rid the earth of this man. He was far too troublesome. He'd become too popular with the people. And furthermore, when he spoke, he spoke as one having authority, and they felt that that was a threat to their position. So they had already decided by this point that Jesus had to die. But again, they had no power to carry out such a sentence. So after Jesus is found guilty by the Sanhedrin, he has to be sent off to the Romans. And Pilate would have to be the one, as the procurator of that portion of the Roman world, he would be responsible for carrying out the sentence, delivering the sentence, and making sure that it was carried out. So we have the Roman trial, and like the Jewish trial, it comes in three parts. There is the initial appearance before Pilate. Now, when Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin sent Jesus off to Pontius Pilate, they thought this was going to be a pro forma hearing. They thought that they would send this troublesome man off to Pilate with the charges that they had, and Pilate would simply rubber stamp the verdict that they had already determined. 
but that's where they were mistaken. Pilate, for whatever reasons, decides to reopen the case and to examine the evidence against Jesus himself. And what we discover in Matthew chapter 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 18 is that Pilate finds no fault in Jesus. As far as he can tell, Jesus has not violated any kind of Roman law. And so he decides that these are religious matters. He's not going to pass judgment on them. Instead, he decides to send Jesus off to King Herod. Now, Herod, of course, was a vassal. He was the king of the Jews. He served subject to the Roman authorities, but he was the local chieftain, so to speak. And because these were religious matters, and Jesus, as far as Pilate was concerned, had not violated any Roman or imperial law, he thought that Herod ought to pass judgment. It's a classic example of someone passing the buck and passing the responsibility. So Pilate, finding no fault in Jesus, sends him off to Herod. Well, Herod has no real legitimate authority. He's not going to be able to satisfy the Sanhedrin either, because remember, they want Jesus dead, and Herod has no authority to do that. And so what happens? Well, we're told in Luke chapter 23 that Herod toys with Jesus. Uh, he wants Jesus to perform some miracle. He had heard that Jesus was a marker of miracles, signs, and wonders. And so he, in, he sort of engages Jesus, sort of eggs him on, wants him to perform a miracle. Uh, he's surrounded there by a great entourage of people with all of their pomp and their ceremony, and they mock Jesus and so forth. But in the end, they have no authority to do anything with Jesus, and so they have to send him back to Pontius Pilate. Pilate, by this point, is getting anxious. The crowds are restless. The Sanhedrin is angry. He tried to pass the buck. He couldn't, and so now Jesus is back in his lap. Three times over the course of this hearing, Pontius Pilate says that Jesus is innocent. He has not violated any law. But in the end, out of fear for the people, and because it's his responsibility to keep the peace, to maintain the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, in that portion of the Roman world, he caves in. And as we all know, he ultimately condemns Jesus to death. And he orders the Lord to be taken from that council hall and to be taken, stripped, flogged, and ultimately crucified. So that's sort of the bird's eye view of what happened to Jesus after his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. He appears before the Jewish authorities. It's a trial in three parts. He is ultimately sent to the Roman authorities. It's a trial in three parts. And Jesus is then condemned to death and ultimately executed. Now, what we're going to look at in a little closer detail now is the trial before the Jewish authorities, because it is described in some detail here in Matthew chapter 26, the trial that took place before Caiaphas. And one of the first things that you notice about this trial is that there are multiple illegalities. Some years ago, and perhaps you can pull it up on our website, my friend Alan Runyon, who is the lawyer for the attorney, the attorney for the diocese and um, for many of the parishes in the diocese in this lawsuit that we have with tech, Alan has done a great study of the trials of Jesus. And I brought him here to St. Philip's, and he did a wonderful presentation on these trials. If you want the detailed look at this sort of thing, go back and see if you can find that. 
and watch Alan Runyon's presentation. He did it, I think, over the course of three Sundays. And it's riveting and it's very interesting. But one of the first things, as I said, that you will notice about Jesus' trial before the Jewish authorities is that there were many illegalities. Let me just put out to you a few of them. The first thing is this. Jesus was arrested at night. And according to the Mishnah, according to Jewish law, that was illegal. And not only was Jesus arrested at night under the cover of darkness, but the trial was held by night, another violation of Jewish law. Trials were expected to be happening or were expected to happen in the daylight. Another illegality is this. Jesus was arrested as a result of a traitor, someone in his closest circle betraying him. And this too was a violation of Jewish law. You were not allowed to be executed or accused by someone who was a traitor, a member, for example, of your own family. A member of a family could not give testimony against another member of the family. So that was illegal according to Jewish law. Third thing was this, when Jesus was arrested, no formal charge was brought against him. Now, when somebody is arrested today, the first question they're going to ask the police is, why? Why are you arresting me? And a charge has to be brought. What is interesting is that no formal charge was ever brought against Jesus, which again was a violation of the Mishnah. Here's the fourth thing that was illegal about this trial. The high priest himself intervened. Everybody in Judaism recognized that the position of high priest was a very noble position. It was an exalted position. It was a great deal of influence that was vested in the office of the high priest. And so when a trial was held before the Sanhedrin, the high priest was not permitted to give testimony or to intervene until the trial was over and everybody else had passed judgment. Because the feeling was if the high priest intervened because of all of his influence, everybody else would be swayed by his opinion. So there is a sense in which the high priest sort of functioned like the vice president in the Senate. If there is a tie, the vice president has the authority and the power to break the tie. But otherwise, that person cannot vote. Well, that's the way it was supposed to be for the high priest. But one of the things we quickly discover when Jesus was brought before Caiaphas is that Caiaphas, because he realized that the opportunity was slipping away, interfered. He intervened. This was a violation of Jewish law. Another illegality was the fact that Jesus was never given a defense attorney. We say if you do not have an, a third, an, an attorney, one will be provided for you. We call them public defenders. Well, Jews were supposed to provide a public defender. If someone did not have an attorney, someone to stand for them, an advocate, a paraclete, that's the Greek word for it. We use that word to describe the Holy Spirit. It means advocate, someone who speaks on behalf of another. Jewish law required that if someone did not have a paraclete, one had to be provided for them. None was ever provided for Jesus. And here's the final illegality. And this is a unique feature of Jewish law. A person could never be condemned on the basis of a unanimous verdict. Now that's interesting, isn't it? But Jews believe that if a person was condemned on the basis of a unanimous verdict, 
there might have been some sort of collusion that had taken place. And so there had to be at least one dissenting vote in order for a person to be condemned. And what is interesting is that Jesus was condemned on the basis of a unanimous verdict. Now, all of these were illegalities, and any number of them, even one of them, was legitimate enough to have the whole thing thrown out. But as we all know, that is not what happened. And that's because these wicked leaders had already decided beforehand what was to happen. And yet, when you look at the trial, in spite of all of its illegalities, one of the things that you will notice is that there was a concern on the part of the Sanhedrin, on the part of Caiaphas, for the appearance of legality. You know, that's often the way it is when people are doing evil things. They want to somehow justify it. Thomas Cranmer once said, whatever the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind will justify. That's true in our lives as individuals, and it was certainly true of these Jewish religious leaders. Their hearts desired to put Jesus to death. Their will had already chosen that that was what was going to happen, but now they needed to justify it. Their minds needed to justify it, and they needed to justify it in the eyes of the Roman authorities and in the eyes of the Jewish people. Because remember, Jesus by this point was still quite popular with the people. He had entered Jerusalem just a few days before in great triumph. The people had shouted, Hosanna in the highest. They had been tearing down those palm branches from the trees, taking off their cloaks, putting them down before Jesus. He was regarded as the hero of the people. And one of the reasons why the Sanhedrin had lingered so long in putting Jesus to death is because they were fearful of the crowds. So if, in fact, they were going to condemn Jesus to death, and by this point the die was cast, they needed to at least make sure that the proceedings had the appearance of legitimacy. And so one of the things that you'll notice if you go back to Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 and following, one of the things that you will notice is that multiple witnesses were called. Look again at verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. They needed to have witnesses in order to make these proceedings legitimate. Now, the question is, where were they going to find these kinds of witnesses? Because Jesus, again, was arrested when? At night, at a late hour. Where were they going to find witnesses? They had to have them. And so we're told that they brought forward many false witnesses. Who knows? Perhaps they paid them off. But they wanted to at least have witnesses. They wanted this to have the look of legitimacy and legality. Now, most of the testimony that these witnesses brought, and Matthew makes this very clear, is what we would call vain testimony. It was irrelevant or worthless testimony. It's the kind of testimony that a judge in a court of law would say needs to be stricken from the record. It's the kind of testimony that a judge would say to a jury, disregard that last statement. In other words, it was the kind of testimony that could not be used to condemn Jesus or to convict him. So the Jewish religious leaders were really in a pickle here. They had already decided that Jesus had to die. They were trying to find witnesses. It was difficult to do at that point at night. 
And furthermore, most of the witnesses that they did bring forward were giving irrelevant or worthless or vain testimony. Finally, however, we're told that two witnesses did come forward. Two witnesses did come forward, and the charge that they brought against Jesus, the charge that ultimately would stick, was the charge that Jesus was going to tear down the temple. So look again at verse 59 and following. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now that was a serious charge. It was a serious charge for a couple of reasons. First of all, it was serious because to threaten to destroy the temple or to do any harm to the temple was regarded as sacrilege. Remember to the Jews, the most important symbol in all of their life was the temple. The temple was that place where God dwelt symbolically with his people. It was the most important place on earth to a Jew. It was the center of the earth for Jews in the first century. Just to get a sense of how important it is, if you've been to the Holy Land, you know that the only section of the temple that remains is the outer retaining wall. In the year 70 AD, the Romans came in and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem as the result of a messianic uprising. They destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They put hundreds of thousands of people to the sword and they raised the temple. They destroyed it. And the only section that was left was the outer retaining wall, not actually a part of the temple itself. The Jews call it the Wailing Wall today. And they go there to mourn the loss of what was and to pray for what they hope will be the restoration of the temple in the future. So the temple was a sacred place. And here was this charge being brought against Jesus that he was going to do damage to it or he was going to destroy it. That was a serious charge of sacrilege. And furthermore, he didn't just say that he was going to destroy it. He says three days later, he's going to rebuild it. Now, how in the world could anybody possibly do that? It had taken years for the temple to be constructed. And it had taken massive labor in order for that to happen. What in the world was Jesus claiming? Well, this could have been the charge of sorcery. The only way that somebody could have done this was by means of black magic. And in the first century in Judaism, that was a charge that was punishable by death. So this was a legitimate charge. And furthermore, the witnesses were very clear they had heard Jesus make this claim. The other witnesses that had come before, their testimony didn't agree, but apparently these two witnesses did agree. And what is interesting is that the Gospel of John actually records the fact that Jesus did make this claim. Keep your finger there in Matthew and skip to the right for a moment to John chapter 2. This is one of those occasions where the Gospels actually corroborate each other and enforce each other. In John chapter 2, we read this. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, 
And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the Lord had said that he was going to destroy this temple and in the three days rebuild it. He was, of course, talking about the temple of his body, but the Jews misunderstood him, taking him to mean the temple that was in Jerusalem. So this is a serious charge that is brought against Jesus. But here's the problem. The Jewish religious leaders knew full well that Jesus was not talking about the temple itself. Maybe the people have been confused, but the Jewish religious leaders were not confused. Why do we know that? We know it because after Jesus was crucified and his body was laid in the tomb, you will recall that Caiaphas and the other members of the Sanhedrin had gone to the Roman authorities and asked for a guard to be posted at the tomb. Why? Because they said this deceiver has said that he would be crucified and three days later rise again. They knew that's what Jesus was talking about when he talked about destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days. And they say, we do not want him to deceive the people. We are fearful that his disciples will come and steal the body. Therefore, give us a guard. And we're told that Pilate provided them with a guard that was necessary to secure the tomb. So they knew full well, regardless of what they were saying, they knew full well what Jesus was referring to. And that's when Caiaphas intervenes in verse 63. Caiaphas realizes that the opportunity is slipping away. Now, again, it's a violation of Roman law for the high priest to intervene, but Caiaphas realized that if he didn't, the opportunity would be gone forever. And so Matthew says he intervened, and he put a very pointed question to Jesus, a very pointed question and a very ingenious, wicked, but nevertheless ingenious question. Verse 62 and the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you. That is to say, I charge you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Now, this was the most solemn vow in Judaism. It was a most serious charge that was being made. Now, you'll notice that up to this point, Jesus had been silent. Jesus had not said a word. And that was because, according to Jewish law, you could not bear testimony against yourself. You didn't have to bear testimony against yourself. We say the same thing every time somebody is arrested and you get your rights read to you. You have the right to remain silent. And anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. But you have the right to remain silent. And the same was true according to Jewish law in the first century. Jesus had the right to remain silent. But the reason why this charge, this intervention on the part of Caiaphas was so ingenious and so wicked is because it was very precise. And furthermore, he knew that because this was the most solemn vow, Jesus devout Jew that he was, would not remain silent. Why was it a precise question? It's because of the way he phrased it. 
He said, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He didn't simply ask, are you the Christ or are you the son of the living God? Now, if he had asked just one or the other of those two questions, Jesus would have been able to get out of it. There were many people who claimed to be the Messiah. The Jews were always looking for them. I pointed out to you before that in that period leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD, there were no less than 100 separate messianic uprisings in Judaism. And the way that the Romans dealt with these messianic uprisings is that they simply killed the Messiah. If you cut off the head, the body dies. If you kill the Messiah, the movement dies. So there were many people who claimed to be messiahs, and the Sanhedrin oftentimes took a somewhat apathetic view of things. Uh, they, they didn't commit in any way. Sometimes they remained agnostic. They, they waited to see whether the person really was the Messiah or not. So if Caiaphas had simply asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, and Jesus had answered yes, well, the Sanhedrin would have been forced to wait and see if it was true. But he doesn't ask that. He says, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Now, if they had simply asked, are you the Son of God? Again, Jesus would have been able to escape it. Because the Old Testament spoke of the people of Israel being the sons and daughters of God. The nation of Israel being a son of God. And so Jesus could have said, well, I'm a good Jew. I'm a child of Abraham. So in a sense, yes, I am the son of God. But that's not what Caiaphas asked either. He asked specifically, are you the Christ the Son of God. In other words, are you the Messiah, the divine Messiah? And he charged Jesus to answer that very specific question under the most solemn oath that a Jew could put to him. And Caiaphas knew full well that Jesus would not remain silent. And indeed, he didn't. Jesus had been silent up to this point, like a lamb silent before his shears, but this time he spoke up. You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that's when everything came crashing down. Verse 65 says, then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy, what further witnesses do we need? We don't need any witnesses with all of their vain, irrelevant, worthless testimony. He's condemned by his own words. You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Now, here's the question. What should have happened at this point? Well, if this had been a legitimate trial, Jesus had made some rather extraordinary claims. If they really were following legal proceedings, what they should have done is actually taken some time and investigated the claims. They should have gone and investigated the evidence. All right, he's claimed to be a Messiah. He's claimed to be a son of God. They should have gone back through the Old Testament scriptures and looked at what the Old Testament scriptures said about the Messiah to see if they actually matched up with the character and the person of Jesus. 
And if they had done so, they would have discovered some rather extraordinary things. First of all, they would have discovered that according to the book of the prophet Micah in the Old Testament, the Messiah, whoever he was, and whenever he came, was going to be born in the small village of Bethlehem, in the city of David. And they would have discovered that, lo and behold, Jesus had been born where? In Bethlehem. Because of the census that took place there, Mary and Joseph had gone to be enrolled. And because Joseph was from the line and lineage of David, he had to go to Bethlehem to be enrolled in this census. They would have discovered that, lo and behold, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, just as the Old Testament said the Messiah would be. Second thing they would have discovered was that Jesus had been born of a virgin, just as had been foretold in the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, it's interesting. This is something that many people knew about Jesus. Many people in the first century knew that there were strange circumstances surrounding his birth. And there were all kinds of false charges that were brought against Jesus and his mother. We're told in the Gospel of John, for example, on one occasion, uh, that Jesus accuses the Jewish religious leaders of not being the children of Abraham, but being the children of the devil. And it's interesting what their response is. They say, we are not illegitimate children. Apparently, one of the charges that was brought against Jesus was that he was an illegitimate child. Why? because he didn't have a father. He had an adopted father in Joseph, but he didn't have a biological father. So what they would have discovered if they had looked closely at the evidence is that lo and behold, Jesus had been born of a virgin. Third thing they would have discovered is that Jesus was of David's line. The Old Testament prophet of 2 Samuel and Isaiah both tell us that the Messiah, when he came, would be of the line and lineage of David. And sure enough, Jesus was, not just by virtue of his mother's line, Mary, but also through his father's line, through two different descendants of King David. Jesus was a child of that great king. The fourth thing they would have discovered is that the Old Testament prophesied before the arrival of the Messiah, there would come one who was like Elijah one who was like the voice crying in the wilderness. And everybody was well familiar with John the Baptist. Remember, all of Judea had gone out to John at the beginning of this gospel to be baptized by him. They were cut to the quick when he proclaimed that message of repentance. And it was John who had pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what they would have discovered is that, lo and behold, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, from David's line, preceded by one who was like Elijah. Isaiah says that the Messiah would perform great signs and wonders. Everybody knew Jesus was performing great signs and wonders. In fact, one of the members of the Sanhedrin, in John chapter 3, a man by the name of Nicodemus, had gone to Jesus at night and openly confessed, we know that you are a man who has come from God, for no one could do the things that you are doing unless God were with him. Indeed, the whole reason why there was pandemonium in the city of Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday is because Jesus had just performed the most public of all of his miracles. He had raised Lazarus, who'd been in the tomb for several days from the dead. And we're told that many of the Jews from Jerusalem 
And in John's gospel, whenever it says many of the Jews, it always means the Jewish religious leaders. Many of the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, had gone out to comfort Mary and Martha in the loss of their brothers, and they were witnesses to this great event. This is why the Sanhedrin was so upset. They said the whole world now is going to go after him. So everybody was well aware of Jesus' signs and wonders. They also would have learned if they'd gone back and looked at the evidence in the Old Testament that when the Messiah came and entered the city of Jerusalem, he was going to come riding on the back of a donkey, humble and meek. And indeed, just a few days before, Jesus had entered the city in just that way. Psalm 41 says that when the Messiah came, he would be betrayed by a close friend. The whole reason this trial was taking place is because Jesus had been betrayed by a close friend. For 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave. Isaiah chapter 53, in that great prophecy of the suffering servant, said that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. And despised and rejected by whom? By his own people. And indeed, that is exactly what was happening here. John's gospel begins, he came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. So if they'd gone back and looked at the evidence, they would have quickly realized that this was a fulfillment of prophecy as well. Jesus was being despised and rejected. And finally, if they had looked closely at Psalm 2, at Isaiah 9, Isaiah 7, Daniel 3, they would have discovered that the Messiah was coming to be more than just a political or military savior who would drive out the Romans. All of those passages bear witness to the fact that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would be a son of God, but not a son of God in the sense that we are all sons and daughters of God. He was going to be the unique son of God. He was going to be like God, a reflection of God's glory. He was going to be divine. If they had been serious and gone back and done what they were supposed to do, that is to say, looked at the evidence themselves, they would have come away absolutely convinced that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. And at that point, they should have fallen on their knees and confessed him as their Lord. But they weren't the least bit interested in the evidence. They were interested in one thing only. As I said, whatever the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. Their heart had desired that he should die. Their will had chosen that course of action, and now they were doing everything in their power to justify it. To justify it before each other, to justify it before the Roman authorities, and to justify it before the world. Well, let me ask you a question about Jesus Christ. Have you ever gone back and examined the evidence? This is one of the things that I tried to help us do on Easter. The events that are described in the gospel are not just historical occurrences. They are the most significant events in all of history. And one of the things that is unique about the Christian faith over and against every other religion really in the world is that ours is an historical faith. We are not claiming that Jesus rose spiritually from the dead in the sense that the spirit of Jesus rose in the hearts of his disciples. 
We are saying that Jesus rose bodily, physically from the dead, that these events took place in time and space. And if you go back and you examine the evidence, lo and behold, you will discover that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. Somebody once said, if God exists, nothing else matters. And if God doesn't exist, well, then nothing matters. Well, the same can be applied to Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, if he was the unique son of God from heaven, come down, taking on human flesh, being born of the virgin, walking among us, opening the eyes of the blind, healing the lepers, casting out demons, if he really is the one who mounted the arms of the cross and paid the price for your sin and for mine, was laid in a tomb and three days later was raised again, who ascended to the Father and is coming again with glory and power to judge the living and the dead. If Jesus really is who he claimed to be, then my friends, nothing else matters. And yet on the other hand, if he is not those things, then let's be honest, nothing really matters. You live, you die, end of story. But at the very least, should we not take the time and the effort to examine the evidence for ourselves? It's the one thing, sadly, that the Jewish religious leaders refused to do. And they condemned to death the innocent son of God. But in passing sentence on him, Annas, Caiaphas, the members of the Sanhedrin did in fact pass judgment on themselves. They condemned him, but in so doing condemned themselves. Have you ever looked at the evidence? There's plenty of evidence out there Many lawyers who have looked at the evidence will tell you this is the most well-attested to event in all of history. And down through the years, many people who have looked at the evidence have come to the conclusion that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. If you've never done that, I encourage you to take a look at the evidence and discover who Jesus is for yourself. Next week, when we come back together, we're going to take a look at an event that is very familiar to all of us, a tragic event, the denial of Peter. Peter denied the Lord three times, and it was a serious matter. It was a serious matter because Jesus earlier in this same gospel said that he who denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And indeed, Peter did deny Jesus before men. Denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. What happens to a person like that? What leads a person to that kind of a low place? And what hope is there for such a person? That's what we're going to take a look at next week. Let me just pause there. We're done a little bit early, about five minutes. Uh, I've got much more that I could say. We could go on to this next section, Matthew chapter 26. I'm prepared to do so, but we'd never get through it. So this is a good stopping place for us. It's an opportunity for me to allow you to ask any questions that you may have. So if you've got them, go ahead and feel free to type them in at this point. 
and uh, I'll answer them. You can ask questions about this or any other thing that we've been looking at in Matthew's gospel so far. Okay, so the question is, if Caiaphas collaborated with the Romans, why did they choose Annas? I suspect that the temple guards who arrested Jesus, they probably regarded Annas as the legitimate high priest. While Caiaphas alone had the authority to convict Jesus, nevertheless, they, they recognized Annas as the legitimate high priest. And in order to have any legitimacy done to this, remember, the, the temple guards, some of these temple guards were probably a little anxious about arresting Jesus. John's gospel tells us that the Sanhedrin had ordered that Jesus be arrested on a previous occasion. And the guards had gone to arrest Jesus, and they came back empty-handed. And the scribes and the Pharisees demanded to know why. why. Why have you come back? Where is he? We sent you to arrest him, and you've come back empty-handed. What's going on? And the temple guards, we're told, replied by saying, no man ever taught like this man did. And the scribes and the Pharisees were outraged. They said, so you've been seduced by him as well. I think it's probably legitimate to assume that many of these temple guards were persuaded by Jesus. They were impressed by Jesus. People couldn't help but be. You recall that when Jesus was hanging on the cross and dying and cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even one of those hard-bitten Roman guards there at the foot of the cross said, surely this man was the Son of God. So I suspect that with the temple guards, they took Jesus before Annas, because if this man was going to be condemned, they at least wanted to make sure that there was a shred of legitimacy associated with it. But Annas passed the buck and sent Jesus on to Caiaphas. So I think that's probably what's going on here. Part of the problem is we're not giving all those details. Okay? Well, I think that's more than enough for today. Don't you agree? So let's go ahead and we'll take a look next week at the denial of Peter. And we'll ask the question, are we any, in any way like the Apostle Peter? Thanks for joining me today. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer, and I'll let you go off uh, to your day's business. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. We read this, and these were dark events that are described here. The wickedness of these men, Annas and Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate, and all of these people who dared to stand in judgment of the Son of the living God. But we thank you, Father, that you redeemed the situation and that Jesus Christ, by dying on the cross, freed us from the judgment that we would have to face before that ultimate tribunal, the tribunal of heaven. We thank you that Jesus has taken the punishment for our sins upon himself, that we might go free. Grant us the grace, Lord, to now live for him who gave up everything for us. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you soon. Take care.